super delighted that you're out tonight. Maybe you normally don't come on Sunday nights, but it's an important week, and it's so important for us to have the whole story of Easter, of Resurrection Week, of Passion Week. And there's an often skipped over portion of that because there's just limited time if all you do is Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter morning. Um, it's virtually impossible to cover all of the component parts of the Passion Week. And very specifically, Jesus' trial. And the reason I want to share what I'm going to share with you tonight is actually very simple. And if you'd do me a favor and turn before we get to our time in the Gospel of Luke, if you would turn to Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians to chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 18, down through verse 21. Because the scriptures plainly declare that Jesus was sinless. So if in fact he was guilty of any crime whatsoever, Jesus was not sinless. Notice what it says, verse 18 2 Corinthians 5, And now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And that is that God was, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Very much what I said earlier today during our first installment. It's why Jesus came. To reconcile the world back to God. God is separated from us at birth by sin. And once we acknowledge that sinfulness and we remain in it, we would remain separated from God. But God sent Jesus to reconcile us back to himself. And therefore not imputing their trespasses to them, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, and we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Now here it comes. For he made him, that him is Jesus. He made him, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the innocence of your son Jesus. You sent him to this earth to reconcile your creation and us as humankind back to yourself, and to do so, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God died on Calvary's cross. That Passover Eve, Lord, some 2,000 years ago. And so, Lord, as we look at the events that lead up to that time when sinless God died for sinful mankind, God, would you bless us with your presence, would your spirit be ruling and reigning in our lives tonight? Instruct us by the majesty and power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you turn to Luke 23, and now our text for tonight in the trial of the king or the king's trial. Now remember again, this is also found in all four of the gospels. So Luke 23 and then Matthew 26, 27, Mark 14 and 15, and John 18 and 19. But for sake of time and for condensing thought, uh, we'll pick up and begin here uh, in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, the first 18 verses here. And when the whole multitude of them rose and led him to Pilate, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying, He himself is Christ, a king. And so you begin to see the accusations against Jesus. Now there are a couple of accusations in that one sentence that would be crimes in and of themselves. Were they true, Jesus would be guilty, he'd be worthy of death, and he absolutely would not be sinless. And then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. So anyone claiming that Jesus never claimed that he was God Though he never directly said, I am God, he repeatedly over and over declared his Messiahship, and he does so again, it is as you say, because to the Jewish mindset, the king of the Jews is also Messiah. It is as you say, and so Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were Galilean. Would have been a normal question. (laughs) Are you really from there? Out there in the bonies? Seriously? You're a threat? And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Keep track of the details. Keep track of the people here. Part of the, part of the beauty of all of this is exactly how innocent Jesus is of the charges. So you have the Jewish religious leadership, very specifically the Sanhedrin, which is 71 plus the high priest or 72 rulers of Israel, those who are responsible for the law itself and its enforcement over the Jewish people. So you have the high priest, and in this case, the high priest's father-in-law. We're going to see Annas and Caiaphas working together. We're going to see Pilate, Pontius Pilate. We're going to see Herod. Now remember the Herods are not Jewish, nor are they Roman. They're Idumean. Idumeans were basically mixed with Jordanian or Edomite blood, and so they're part Jew and part Edomite, sworn enemies of the children of Israel, but not specifically Jewish, not specifically Edomites, but they're the ruling class of people. So in the Herods, you had Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. This happens to be Herod Antipas. And so the Herods were ruling in the region. 
So it's gone from a provincial governor in Pilate to the literal ruler of the region, one of the Herods. So it's going up the food chain. It's going up in sense of its severity. And now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And if you remember when John the Baptist was put to death, it was Herod who was furious over this, that John the Baptist would go so far as to condemn his lifestyle. And so he was always looking for a little bit of an entertainment. You know, when you're a Herod and you have everything, uh, you, you, you kind of look for other things to entertain yourself. And in this case, a miracle here, a miracle there, some nearly pornographic dancing happening, whatever it is, if it's something new, Herod wants it. And so he's looking at Jesus' entertainment. And now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, and he hoped uh, that he had desired to see him for long because he'd heard these many things about him. He hoped to see some miracle done by him. So he, he comes right out and says, look, look, I, I, can you do a miracle for me? It's kind of like he just hired himself a, a magician or something. You know, can you make something disappear? Maybe do the water into wine thing. I heard about that one. There's already really in that sense mocking going on. You're famous, but you're famous for doing stuff that nobody believes anybody can do. And then he questioned him with many words, but he, that he being Jesus, answered him nothing. Secret in the court of law, the less you say, the better off you are. Because you can't incriminate yourself if you don't say anything. Jesus, being God, knows this. He's talking to someone who's dishonest. He's talking to someone who has ill intent. And so Jesus does exactly what the prophet Isaiah said he would do, and that is he answers nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Notice it is strictly accusational. There's no proof offered. There's no real crime actually even indicted against Jesus other than some accusations that he may have possibly incited someone to not pay taxes to Caesar. And then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. You can see the mockery of this whole thing. Pilate, Herod, Herod, back to Pilate, Annas, Caiaphas, high priest courtyard, courtyard of the Sanhedrin. Jesus is going to be tried from the time he is arrested until daybreak six times illegally. Six times. So Pilate receives Jesus again, and that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. That old Arabic proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That was true in that day. It's true in our day. They became friends with each other. 
for previously they had been at enmity with each other. <laughs> as long as we can agree about who we hate, we're good. Strange how the heart of man works those things. And then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, so now the plot thickens yet to another level. Previously, you just have the high priests and Pilate and a handful of guards. And now the chief priests are brought in and the rulers and the people. Now he's bringing in just the common folks because they're looking for something with which they can accuse Jesus. They have not found a credible witness and so they are going to pull out the stops and bring in anyone and everyone that they can possibly find. If you ever saw Jesus out on the street somewhere, could you come and testify against him is basically the principle here. And said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. Whew, that's a horrible thing. You imagine if our Rulers of our government never were put to that test. They mislead the people. That's actually a qualification. It's like, I'm a misleader. Very often it's true. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, notice what he says. I have found no fault in this man. You brought a ridiculous accusation against him that he misleads the people. And even on that fine point of insignificance, he's not guilty. Concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. So you have the governor and you have the provincial ruler of Palestine neither of whom find fault in Jesus. For I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And this is where you can kind of start to see everything unravel, even from a human standpoint. And therefore I will chastise him and release him. That wasn't going to be good enough. Now think back on Jesus' life. He said, I am. I'm Messiah. But really, other than that, he has simply said, I have come to do my Father's will. He has healed thousands of people. He's fed thousands of people. He's ministered to those who are sick. He, he has taken care of people who are paralyzed. He has done nothing but goodness and kindness and done it with joy and love. That is exactly how blind people can be. Because they can see and know and understand and even tell you the truth, but they will not follow the truth. They won't take the information where it leads. For it was necessary for him to release one of them at a feast... It was tradition, it wasn't really law, but it was tradition amongst the Roman rulers to keep peace. Remember that the Romans, though they were cruel taskmasters, and though they were very barbarous in states of war, once they conquered a region, 
they brought with them the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. And along with that came road systems, aqueducts that flowed with water. If you go to Israel today, you'll still see the remains of the Roman aqueduct that came from Mount Hermon all the way down to the city of Caesarea Maritima on the coast, providing fresh running water to a city that literally is on the ocean. So the Romans weren't all bad. And in fact, they were generally quite fair. You just didn't want to get on their bad side. And so their good side was, in a region that had already been conquered, like Palestine, on a feast day to make nice with the inhabitants of the people of the lands that they had conquered, they would take up some cause of social justice within their own sphere of influence and say, you know what, we're going to release to you one of your own as a sign of how magnanimous we really are. And so he proposes. And they all cried out, knowing exactly what he was going to do. Because you can see it. Follows directly on the heels of, I'll just chastise him and release him. Because even if he was actually guilty, I still, as the ruler of this region, have the right to release this man. Even if he were guilty, he's not. So I'm going to take it upon myself to do what you won't do, which is to let him go. So I'm going to let him go for you. This is how hated Jesus was because the demonic influence of that day, the same one that exists in this day, did not want to see the completion of God's plan of grace. I'm going to release him. Let him go his way. Let him do his thing. He'll die of old age. Everything will be fine. But notice what is said. And they all cried out at once, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Jesus. Bar-Abbas. Release to us the false Yahushua our God who is salvation. We want a military ruler. We want somebody who will fight. And because Barabbas had been thrown into prison for rebellion, specifically not rebellion, but rather sedition, he had fought against the Romans. He was literally worthy of death. And oh, by the way, the little tiny crime of murder. Can you imagine? The Lord of heaven and earth standing in front of those he created, enduring what he endured. Do you think Jesus would have been able to defend himself? Of course he could. Amen? You think he had something he could have said? Of course he did. But the prophet Isaiah, there in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, says this. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Now remember, this is 717 years earlier. 
This wasn't the week before the trial. This is written by the prophet Isaiah in 686 B.C. So it had been around a long time. Do you wonder why the high priest rent his garment? Can you imagine what the high priest is thinking as Jesus repeatedly reminds them, I am. Because Isaiah 53 is attributed to I am. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as his sheep is before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living and for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. The trial of Jesus. There's so many things in this whole drama that plays out during the trial. And we'll try and just simply highlight many of them tonight. The first thing that we see is Jesus abandoned by man. When you read the gospel accounts, it's not bad enough that he has been falsely accused and apprehended there in the garden. And we'll get to that a little more on Good Friday. But as Judas is tossed that bag of silver coin, remember that a person who was in the temple could not use Gentile coinage. And so the temple actually had its own silver. And so he's tossed what is in effect holy money for unholy things. And Judas, of course, betrays Jesus with a kiss but Matthew's gospel records for us in Matthew 26, 26, and then all of the disciples deserted him and fled. Luke's gospel actually goes on to remind us that some of them left their clothes behind. Jesus was completely abandoned by those who had declared, like Peter, no one's taken you, Lord. I got your back. So much so with a sense of bravado, he lops off the high priest, Malchus's servant. Malchus, the servant of the high priest, lops his ear off. Jesus puts it back on. Interesting that the 22nd Psalm declares for us Jesus crying out from the cross, but David writing of it a thousand years before that scene played out 2,000 years ago. So more than 3,000 years ago, the psalmist David, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Speaking of Messiah. You talk about being alone. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever traveled internationally and had the opportunity to be stopped by a foreign government force. Your pastor has. Stopped at the border of what was then Yugoslavia going into Hungary. And I remember the terror of all of a sudden realizing my U.S. passport was going to do me absolutely zero good. They couldn't care less. This is before the fall of the Iron Curtain. This is the Soviet Socialist Republic. 
We're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there is no one anywhere. All I can tell you is that's a new kind of fear. I'm thinking of the gulags. I'm thinking of Siberia. I'm thinking they're just going to shoot me and throw me in a ditch right here, right now, and no one's ever going to know. But the truth of the matter is I had three traveling companions, and ultimately we would be safe because there actually was someone there to help. And we began to speak and talk. But can you imagine zero defense and literally no one with you? Remember, Jesus was also a man. It's the reason during his betrayal in the garden when he's crying out these great drops of blood and sweating and and all of a sudden, he, he goes to the guys who were supposed to be the ones who were going to help him with his kingdom. He doesn't go once. He doesn't go twice. He goes three times and finds them all three times asleep. He's weeping and crying. You see, Jesus was first abandoned. Then we look at the illegality of Jesus' trial itself. And there were six of them, and parts of the illegality was involved in each one of them, so you could almost say that each time it was just multiplied uh, by factors of ten. You and I are not allowed to be tried of the same crime uh, repeatedly. Once you've gone to trial, if you're found innocent, you're innocent, period. They couldn't get him in court one, so he went to court two. Couldn't get him in court two, so he went to court three. Couldn't get him in court three, went to court four, all the way to court six. And each time they added some new kind of crime to the list of horrible things he did. And yet it is said that they could not get two witnesses to come together and agree. A command of the law. Those illegalities, trials could only occur in the regular meeting places of the Sanhedrin. They could never occur in the palace or the, the house of the high priest, and yet that's where one of the trials occurred. Trials couldn't occur on the eve of the Sabbath, a feast day, or at night, which is exactly when the trials occurred. So all three things were illegal. A guilty sentence because the court system was actually quite fair. A guilty sentence could not be carried out until a full turn of the clock had happened. If you were convicted on one day, you had to wait for a night and a day the following, so that just in case there was some witness that didn't testify on your behalf, they could be found and be brought into court so that ultimately the truth could be known. There's nothing about this. The witnesses that are brought forward. The book of Deuteronomy laid these out. Now remember, this is a Hebrew trial. This is a trial, a religious trial in that sense. Pilate says very clearly, he's done nothing against Rome. Pilate actually says very clearly, I find no fault in him, period. He's innocent. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says, One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense. The matter must be established out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Hang on to that one. It's 
codified actually in Deuteronomy 17, that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, someone could be put to death and shall not be put to death if there's only one witness. If you look at what Scripture says about this whole thing, Mark in Mark 14, 56 says, many testified falsely against him. Now, it's important to leave the word falsely in place there in Mark 14. But even the false witnesses could not agree with one another. Even though they were making stuff up, they couldn't get two guys to come in and say the false thing the same. Their statements did not agree, Scripture says. While he was in the high court, several illegal things happened in there. He's questioned by Annas. The high priest or the previous high priest was not allowed to be engaged in the actual proceedings. They were only allowed to listen. He was struck by a soldier. No one in, the, in a religious court setting was allowed to be struck for any reason whatsoever. No physical violence was allowed of any kind. Now he's brought to Caiaphas in the, in the Sanhedrin and Jesus is going to be falsely accused. He's slapped by the palace guards. He's spit on. They strike him in the face. Everything that's going on, none of it was okay. Pilate's own verdict, notice Mark's gospel in chapter 15, verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and then he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And yet at the same time, he has already said that he went out and said, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. So Jesus is just one case after another case of innocence in the face of false accusations. The charge now goes, instead of an actual crime, it's just an allegation of a crime. It starts out, well, we think he blasphemed. We're pretty sure he's a tax evader. And now it gets down to the level of, well, we think we heard somebody say that they thought, that someone else thought, that someone else may have heard, that maybe Jesus at some point in time associated with a tax evader. It's really kind of the line of reasoning that they take. And while it's not fleshed out that way, the way that the original language is, is purposed to lead us to these little tiny clues, it's like, hey, not only was there nothing real in it, they started making things up, and then they just added to what they made up. Anybody ever had the experience of talking to someone who's caught in the middle of the lie, and every time they tell the lie, it gets a little bigger? and a little more detailed, and also a little less true, because there was never, never any truth in it in the beginning, and now they've added to a whole bunch of other layers of lies, and you peel all the onion layers back, and it's like, wow, that was completely untrue. But some people, in hearing all of the detail, well, that much detail has got to be guilty. All the details added to the case of Jesus and not one bit of it was ever believed really by anybody. And so the Roman soldiers begin to mock and to beat Jesus. It's interesting to me that as they do this, they, they strip him down. 
They put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twist together a, a crown of thorns. So we've traveled to Israel. I usually attempt to find a dom tree, which is a type of acacia. And the thorns on that tree are so hard when they're dried out that you can actually snap them off and you could take a rock and you can drive them into wood. The bone in your head is about the same density as wood when it still has blood in it. It doesn't get really hard until it dries out and you kind of need to remove it from your flesh in order to do that. But when it's still inside the skin, it's actually fairly malleable. Now imagine that this crown of thorns has been made. And scripture is very clear that Jesus is now going to have that crown of thorns put on his head. He is going to be beaten. He's going to be slapped. The prophet Isaiah said his beard will be plucked. And he's dressed in scarlet. Interesting. Because the original curse that you find in Genesis chapter 3 is cursed as the ground because of you and through painful toil you will eat of it all of the days of your life and it will produce thorns. And so the crown on Jesus' head is a sign of the curse. The prophet Isaiah said, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be one day made white as wool. And what color is the robe that they put on Jesus but the color of your sin? What was that passage that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Even the robe and the crown of thorns was screaming out to you and I. Jeff, that's your sin on his head. That's the weight of the curse that's bearing on me. That covering of scarlet, Jeff, that's your sin. Because it wasn't his. What they should have put on him was a royal purple robe. With all the trimmings. And a crown. Maybe grabbed Annas or Caiaphas's crown that they would wear when they were on duty in the temple. That on the front portion of it says, Holiness unto the Lord. That would have been appropriate. But they put the crown of thorns and they put the robe on him. To mock him further, they thought they were simply making him a false king. Little did they know they were actually proclaiming that he was taking the sin of the world upon him. The severity of the beating that Jesus took before he was ever really even tried is almost unimaginable. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever you know, wandered on a beach someplace and wonderfully been wearing a you know, set of flip-flops and you, you find some thorn from a palm tree and it goes not only through the flip-flop but nearly out the top of your foot. 
Now imagine that someone puts those on your head and just beats them into your skull. He's not been tried yet. Not legally. He's just simply receiving this beating. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says he offered his back to those who beat him. His cheeks to those who pulled his beard and he did not hide his face from the mocking. It goes on to say that so many there in Isaiah 52 were appalled at him for his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man that his form was marred beyond human likeness. You know, sometimes I wonder if right after the resurrection that maybe one of the reasons that no one recognized him initially was because he was still bearing those marks. Interestingly enough, he's going to bear those marks in heaven. Scripture says, it is he who appears as a lamb who was slain. Marred for you, marred for me, beat for you. In Matthew chapter 26, if you want to turn there, pick up in verse 57. I want to look at five very specific things of the injustice that was done to Jesus. And when you think on these things, the way I want you to try and think on them is put yourself into the equation. Because every single one of these things was done for you. Done for me. Done for us. Done for those who would receive and believe and become God's kids because of grace. The first thing that we see there is an illegal convening of the, of the Sanhedrin. You see, it was extremely important. And it says there in verse 57, And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Very meticulous detail keeping here. But Peter was also following them at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So there was an eyewitness, his name was Peter, an apostle, a disciple of the Lord, who knew exactly when and where this particular convening of the Sanhedrin took place. You see, after the disciples fled in fear, and the temple police, the Roman soldiers, and the others who had seized Jesus led him away, John reminds us that they led him first to Annas because he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. You see, 20 years earlier, Annas had served as the high priest. And much like we see in papal ascent, right now there are actually two popes in the world. There's Pope Francis. But there's still another living pope, and until he dies, John Paul will still be pope. It's an office for life, very similar to the high priest. Once a high priest was a high priest, he was actually expected to live out his life as the high priest and die. But during this time, they had become so corrupt, and the reason that Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the money changers' tables 
is that they, in essence, became bankers of religious currency because you could not spend Gentile coinage inside of the temple compound, and so it became a business enterprise. And so if you needed to use temple coinage to pay a temple tax, to pay your tithe, to buy a dove, to buy uh, a bundle of sticks as an offering on the fire, to perhaps buy uh, some other thing that you needed that needed to be holy or kosher, you had to use temple money to do it. And so Annas got involved in, in overseeing what ultimately became called the bazaars of Annas which is where all the money changers and those who bought and sold all of the sacrificial components that were necessary for temple service. But they became so corrupt that very often they ended up actually being able to retire. They became wealthy from doing it. And so Annas gets to retire and his son-in-law becomes the high priest, the next high priest. So now you have inside of this one family in essence, two high priests. It was also an all-cash business. And so in order to keep all these things silent, rather than convening a normal Sanhedrin, which could not be at night, it had to be during the day, it could not be at anyone's house, especially the high priest's house, it needed to be in the temple compound itself, it's actually in the courtyard of the high priest's home. All that needed to be said was it happened in the high priest's home in the courtyard and this trial was over. Completely unjust. But so many people owed a debt to Annas and Caiaphas that nobody said a word. And the point is this. There are a lot of people that owe debts to the kingdom of this world. And because they owe a debt to the kingdom of this world, they won't stand up for Jesus. Don't let that be you. I pray it's not me or us as a church. Jesus just points out ultimately in John chapter 18, look, I've spoken plainly. I don't even know why you've brought me here. He's not speaking in his own defense. He simply asks him a question. Why is it that you are questioning me? Completely exasperated, Caiaphas just responds in anger. Does exactly what he wants to do. It's an interesting mixture of cowardice, false bravado, trying to convict a man who's not even guilty. You know when you're not correct, very often all you can do is simply point out some false narrative, and that's exactly what's going on here. The next thing that we see is an illegal and unjust conspiracy to convict Jesus. It's one thing to convene the court illegally. It's another thing to try and convict him of something. Notice verse 59 and 61, still here in Matthew 26. And now the chief priest, the whole council, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Read it carefully. It doesn't say they kept trying to figure out what he had done wrong. 
It says they kept trying to find false testimony against Jesus. In order they might put him to death. And they did not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward. But later, two came forward and said, This man stated that I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, you and I know, because we know what Jesus was referring to, what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not talking about destroying the temple. He wasn't going to become the mad bomber of Jerusalem. He wasn't talking about blowing up the building that Herod had so marvelously built that was sitting on the temple mount, shining with marble and gold. Jesus was talking about his own body. And so this man who was not a spiritual man, obviously, who did not believe in the Lord, comes forward and says, look, uh, he's got a bombing plot against the temple. He's planning on destroying it. But it was in the midst of all this false testimony. Mark actually gives us a little additional detail with this particular point. And he says, I, recounting to this man's testimony, that Jesus had said, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. That was even more accurate. And yet it still doesn't make Jesus guilty of anything. Other than he said he came to give his life, and he would lay in the grave three days and be raised three days later, In a body not made with hands. Amen? It's unjust. It was illegal. The whole time that Jesus is hearing these things, you know, sometimes people give more credit to, to demons than are due, or Satan himself even, than they are due. They are not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They don't know everything, and they cannot do everything. Are they powerful? Yes. Do they have the ability to see things in the spirit realm? Yes, they do. So can you imagine if the demons actually knew everything, how much they would have worked to bring somebody forward with something to accuse Jesus of? The fact of the matter is, he was the perfect Lamb of God. And he had done nothing, and there wasn't anything. So the only thing that kept coming forward was lies and injustice, a false conviction. A third thing, you see, in Roman court and also in the Jewish religious court of the Sanhedrin, it was illegal to force someone to self-incriminate. In other words, to bear witness against themselves. Notice verse 62 in Matthew 26. Then the high priest stood up and said, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. They're actually pressuring him to speak so that they can falsely accuse him. They they want him to get engaged. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. I didn't say it. You did. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's saying, you said it. You got it right. I didn't say it. You did. And oh, by the way, there's going to come a point in time when you're going to know absolutely what you just said is true. They were trying to get Jesus to say something about himself for which they could incriminate him. But all he did was turn the tables on him. Because he wasn't answering the question the way they wanted it to be answered. Jesus stands majestically silence. And silence just in innocence. You know, when you're innocent, you don't have to say anything. When there's nothing that needs to be said, you don't need to say anything. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He says, I'm just going to stand silent. You see the Mosaic law actually required there in Leviticus 24 that one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. But Jesus was very careful not to blaspheme the name of the Lord. He said, no, you said it. I didn't say it. You said it. So if you want to put anybody to death, kill yourself. And you see the claim of deity would blasphemous from anybody except Jesus, but Jesus just simply says, look, I've already said all I'm going to say. I've declared very plainly that I am. You haven't brought that accusation against me. And if it were, it would be you saying it. His specific first claim to his Messiahship was actually to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. In response to her statement, the Messiah is coming. He says, it is I who speak to you. I am he. So he'd been very bold in what he had said. But they were trying to get him to say something that was illegal. And Jesus never did. And that being the case, they, they finally just go completely nuts. And you, you saw it in that little video clip, uh, the high priest just grabs the front of his garment and just tears it in two. Verse 65, Matthew 26, the condemnation of Jesus was thereby, he's done nothing wrong. No witnesses have come forward to testify that he's done anything wrong. You have a completely false accusation that doesn't warrant the death penalty in the first place. He's not said anything against himself or for himself. He's spoken no word in his own defense. He's not been allowed to have anyone represent him. The whole thing is a complete sham. And now we see in spite of that, he's condemned. And then the high priest tore his robe saying, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he's deserving of death. They hadn't heard anything that caused Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy. He pointed them back to their own words. He says, you said it. 
What do you believe? They had closed their mind to the truth, and no amount of evidence, no matter who spoke it, was going to convince them. And the point is this. Hard-hearted people can see miracles, and they still won't believe it. Hard-hearted people can, can watch God work in their very presence, and they still won't believe it. And so the high priest, in that state of hard-heartedness, very traditional, very theatrical display of, you know, just this almost righteous indignation. Oh, I can't believe he said that. Speaking in that video clip, he calls him Messiah. He calls him the Son of God. He says, HaMashiach. Baralokim, son of God. What do you think? He said nothing, he's done nothing, and yet he gets a unanimous verdict to condemn him to death. The fact of the matter is, Jesus was going to die. But not because he was rightly condemned, not because he was guilty, because I was guilty. And you were guilty. We were guilty. Mankind was guilty. This is what Jesus came to do. Him who knew no sin was made sin for us. That's why this trial is so important in all of this. You see, if there was anything that, guilt, that Jesus was guilty of, then our sins are not forgiven. Believing in Christ means nothing if he was guilty. If Jesus was guilty of sin, then he was not perfect, and he could not be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But he was completely false, faultless. He was an innocent man condemned to death because of my sin. And then finally, the conduct of the court. Verse 67 and 68, Matthew 26. And then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? They had covered Jesus' face, took turns punching him. Oh yeah, you're the Messiah, all right. Why don't you tell us who it was that hit you? Had Jesus responded, he would have broken the word of the Lord that he would not answer in his own defense. And so he doesn't. He says nothing. Here's the amazing thing. He could have told them absolutely everything that happened and who did it and what they were thinking at the moment they did it. But he didn't. Because again, if he had, then Scripture would not be true. Because the prophet Isaiah said he would not answer one word in his own defense. He answered some questions, but they were not in his defense. And so Jesus just stands there and takes insult. And, and at this time, and it really still is, 
One of the supreme insults uh, of Middle Eastern culture is to spit in someone else's face. It's either that or to take your sandal off and slap them. But to spit on someone is the ultimate disgrace. So much so that in the Kidron Valley, when you travel to Jerusalem today, there is a tomb known as the Tomb of Absalom. And that tomb sits on the side of the Kidron Valley. It's carved half out of bedrock, and the upper half is man-made. It's not old enough to be the actual tomb of David's son, Absalom, the one of rebellion, but it was built as a representation, so much so that when the Jewish person walked by it, they would spit on Absalom's tomb as a sign that Absalom had disrespected the great King David. And so these high priests were treating Jesus like the betrayer of the great King David. Interesting when you think of it. Now even decorum, even decency had gone out the window. You see, true blasphemers, those who were actually blaspheming were really the guys who were accusing Jesus. It wasn't Jesus, it was his accusers. I can tell you this, one day those tables are going to get turned because he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And every bit of that injustice he's going to make right. So you want to be on the right side of that equation before he returns. You do not want to be when Father in heaven sends Jesus his son back a second time. You do not want to be on the side that spit in the face of Jesus. And that's not a threat, just simply what Scripture says. Scripture makes it very clear that the Lord's only going to tarry for a period of time, and then he's going to make these things right. Because every last blow on Jesus' head was marked by God the Father. Every thorn, every false accusation checked off in a box in heaven and unless repented of, remembered by an eternal God who forgets nothing. I, I don't know, don't claim to know what God thinks about such things, but I can tell you this, he wasn't pleased. That his only begotten son, the lamb, was treated in such a way. Here's the good news. And I'll leave you with this. In the midst of all that cruel, absolute injustice, you can actually still see the Lord's amazing grace. As we head towards Good Friday as we think about what will actually happen to him, which will be far worse than the trial. 
It adds all the more depth of beauty to his cries from the cross. Father, forgive them. Forgive Jeff, for he knows not what he does. That injustice turned into justice for you and I. That injustice turned into our salvation. That inhumanity, that ungodly, unlawful behavior, the things that were done to Jesus has produced in us our unbelievable, amazing grace. Amen? Rejoice in that. But never take it for granted. Him who knew no sin was made sin. Perfect Lamb of God, completely sinless, was found guilty for you, for me. Amen? Stand, we'll close in prayer. Worship team's going to come back out. They're going to lead us in a closing song. Let us never take the grace of God for granted. What Jesus went through for you and what he went through for me is beyond our understanding. But I pray tonight as you think on the trial of Jesus and the reason for it, it was necessary for our sakes, not for his, that you'll think on that great grace and love him all the more. Amen? Father, thank you for your great grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin, our sin. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world, that the world through him be saved. Lord Jesus, that you bore those stripes for me, for us, for all who have believed in you, Lord, they're sufficient to grant us eternal life if we'll simply believe. And so, Lord, we pray that that injustice that you endured will somehow in some minor way be made right as we serve you with all that we have. Lord, would our lives bear testimony of our gratefulness for the grace that we've received through what you accomplished on Calvary's cross. We love you, we praise you, we bless you, and we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.